Hi, everyone, and welcome to the FerroPoint uh, Group Podcast. My name is Adir Levita, CEO and founder of uh, FerroPoint. We're here to talk today about the industrial real estate challenges and transformation due to the e-commerce boom and consumer habits uh, changes. We have a special guest today, uh, David Schneider. David has been uh, in the supply chain management and is an expert in its field. He works as a coach to his client, leading them through the supply chain challenges. Before starting his coaching practice in 08, David was the director of global logistics and engineering at Pep Boys Auto, where he led the effort to drive 100 million of cost out of transportation and double volume shipped. David, I'm so pleased to have you with us today. Thank you, Adir. Pleasure to be here. I think that this is one of the most interesting subjects. David, you and us were talking about uh, subjects like this or related for the past year. Uh, 2020 has been a very interesting year to uh, explore more and more changes of the supply chain. Some some good, some bad for certain for certain certain businesses, but definitely uh, interesting. And we thought to have this uh, podcast and uh, share with our listeners some of our views of the challenges COVID-19 has uh, has shown and presented, and how that affected the uh, supply chain. Basically, the demand, the long-term demand, and the short-term demand for industrial real estate. So, so maybe we start with the fact that the growing share of e-commerce is actually now not only 11.5% of the total retail, but has actually reached 15. So we're looking at a uh, really expedition, a few years that came in uh, just in a few months during 2020 of this expedited growth of, uh, of e-commerce. Isn't that a staggering number? It is. And, and, you know, it's reflective of the major players in the marketplace like Amazon or, or Walmart or some of the other uh, e-com players. But what's even more staggering is, is uh, the order of magnitude growth it is for smaller e-com retailers. Some of those are not seeing a percentage growth. They're seeing an order of, order of magnitude growth to where they had been growing at 20, 30% per year. Now they're seeing 70, 80, 100% growth, you know, 2x some of them even faster than that. Their challenges is how do they stay uh, up with that gigantic jump in growth when a lot of times they are lacking the infrastructure to be able to support it. You know, the the CBRE and the Prologis research teams show that uh, we're looking at a change of 25% that was expected, forecasted of total e-commerce share of total retail by the end of 2030, growing to 39%. That is really a a 45% increase for the next uh, uh, 10 years. This has a tremendous effect on uh, on supply chain and the operation within the logistics centers and and just the overall, I guess, supply chain uh, architecture. And and one of the things that I think drive this main difference in a supply chain that's driven by online rather than than, uh, physical stores is the difference in the amount of space needed for a physical store supply chain rather than an online. And and we're looking at three times as more. Uh, Can you share why really for an online-based supply chain there's need for so much more room? Well, you know, it's the breadth of product that they're carrying is is the number one item. Your bricks and mortar stores and uh, the distribution network supported to it, the distribution centers may have had the full breadth of product, but the retail stores didn't. The retail stores would maybe have 30% or 40% of the items that the retail organization would carry. You still have to carry it all at the at the e-commerce side. And then the bigger challenge is, is that it's easier to pick cases of goods 
than it is to pick eaches. It takes a lot less space to pick cases and pallets of goods than it does to t pick individual eaches. Not only for the picking, the storage and the picking, but then you have the packing operations that go into play with it. And so process those e-commerce orders, you send those orders through packing stations that have people in it that will take that product and put it into a box and then process it to get shipped. The uh, necessary infrastructure within the building that's, that's required to support all of those parcels going out versus pallet loads going out also take more space. And so as you look at a e-commerce facility versus you know, shipment to retail or replenishment style of distribution center, fulfillment center for e-commerce has a lot more space dedicated to it for activities that you would never see in a straight distribute to retail mode. And so that explains some of that difference. Also, you know, a very large distribution center can support hundreds of stores. But very large distribution center may not be able to support e-commerce very well out of that same space. Uh, also, there's the movement to get moment centers closer to where the customers are. To do that, there's actually, you're taking a concentration of activity that you would have in a traditional retail distribution center. And now you're breaking that up into smaller and smaller piles of inventory closer to the customer. Uh, you lose a lot of the economies of scale that you get in space utilization, along with cost management. And then also, if you put all that inventory into one pile, you don't have as much safety stock because all of your demand is coming off of one pile of inventory. Now you go and you put it into four or five different fulfillment centers that are closer to the customer. You have a duplication of inventory for safety stock. And that duplication of inventory is roughly three to four times. And so you'll see that the more fulfillment centers that are in the network, the greater the safety stock is across the entire network. And that also drives the space requirements. Well, well that, is, that is really amazing change. It's something that I think uh, is very hard for the entire infrastructure to. Before we go deep dive uh, into more of what we just talked, um, maybe David, you can share about how do you see the entire infrastructure if it's uh, rails or ports, really get clogged just because of the immense demand uh, during the past uh, few months. We're just not ready yet uh, for this kind of, uh, of demand. Well, you know, I'll, I'll focus on one of the things, and this has happened a couple of times here in the U.S., has been uh, the ability of uh, UPS, FedEx, USPS, and some of the other carriers to be able to handle all of this volume. Back in 2014, 2020, 13, 2014, 2015, there was a great deal of uh, challenge in getting all of that e-commerce shipped. Uh, a lot of uh, Christmas packages and holiday packages didn't arrive on time because the carriers lacked that uh, necessary capacity. And so uh, both UPS and FedEx invested massive amounts of money into increasing the infrastructure that they had in their, in their networks. But the other thing that they did was, was they started to go back to their, their customers and go, uh, look, we've got to do a better job of planning and a better job of projecting what your uh, shipment volume is. COVID really threw that out the door this year. And there's, there's problems. I read uh, two articles this morning about how major retailers 
are really struggling to get their packages shipped. They process the packages, but the packages are still sitting on their docks because UPS and FedEx lack the capacity to be able to pick it up. And then going into this year, the carriers really said, you got to you gotta do a much better job of projecting. Once you hit those projections, then we're not guaranteeing that we'll even pick up your freight. And that's happening today. Macy's had big problems with it earlier this week. And there's some other retailers that are having big problems with it. They process the orders, but they have anywhere from two to 15, 20 truckloads parcels sitting on their dock ready to ship. The other side of it, that's on the outbound side. On the inbound side, there's retailers and e-commerce companies that are, are screaming to get their product because their product is stuck in the port. Everybody shipped at the same time out of China and out of Asia and the West Coast ports here in the U.S. are choked to death. Reports that I read earlier this week, it's the container may have gotten unloaded, but it's taking six to eight days to get it out of the port and finally delivered. And that's making it to where there's retailers that have back orders, you know, they have existing orders on product, but they don't have the product to ship. And they had done their projections, they bought it, but it's sitting in a container at a, at a, in a terminal uh, there at the ports. And so it's, this, the supply chain is fragile for these uh, unusual swings and volume that they're seeing. And this year is just another year where COVID has just put the whammy on anybody's projections. Those are the two examples that I think of understanding that fragility. You got it on the inbound side, and then you got it on the outbound side. And the transportation logistics infrastructure just is not is not able to support the, the high volume demands that we're seeing right now. I'm hearing that the first places that UPS and FedEx are not um, being available to deliver are really inside the cities, those last mile locations, just such as, such as LA. I'm hearing that they're not even operational for some of that time and just having a tremendous backlog. And, and that really brings it to uh, startup companies like, I don't know if you remember, if you know of Bring or other companies that I'm hearing of, to take that last mile and really make the uh, demand possible for those consumers. And it just comes to show that the consumers are really dictating this new culture uh, adoption and the change of the entire system. I mean, we're seeing so many trends that are starting up just like uh, the uh, flexes of the world and the where to go and those facilities that are trying to be flexible to support a need on demand for uh, additional warehouse space uh, and the uh, uh, last mile delivery companies such as Bring, and I've just heard of another one this uh, morning, going into this space and trying to take some uh, market share to help those uh, businesses uh, deliver their uh, uh, goods. Uh, do you think those trends and those companies and those where the goes and, and, and flexes of the world, are they here to stay? I, th I think so. They're, um, you know, what they're providing is uh, pressure relief valve, uh, mainly being used by smaller companies. Uh, the more, the larger the e-commerce company is and the more hardened they are with their systems and their processes, the harder it is for them to pivot and make changes and go, you know what, 
handle our volume. So we'll switch to Bring or we'll switch to Flexi or one of these other uh, carriers. It's hard for them to do that because they've got a significant amount of their infrastructure pre-programmed to support UPS and FedEx. And so the smaller e-commerce companies that are more nimble and not as systems process driven, you're able to avoid some of the problems that they would run into that the bigger companies are running into because they're able to make that switch. I think in the long run, though, that's going to create more opportunity for these alternate carriers because they will have established relationships with these smaller growing companies and be able to get their nose in underneath the tent, so to speak, and be able to compete against UPS and FedEx in ways that they couldn't in the past. Uh, the COVID situation is opening up that opportunity for them. When we're thinking about, you know, I read an interesting uh, article uh, uh, that has stats about Amazon Prime showing that uh, Amazon Prime won two days uh, shipping, showing that 67% of all of Amazon shoppers have Prime, meaning two-thirds of the entire Amazon uh, members are looking for those one and two days shipping. And when they were asked why did they sign up for Prime, 89% of those shoppers cited one-day shipping as their main reason they, they, they took on, on Prime. So that brings me to think Amazon as the pace leader, as the market leader, are really showing us now this is a window into the future. The two days, one day delivery is probably going to uh, keep being at least standout. And those companies that uh, were used to ship uh, one shipment into Walmart and into Target, and then they would do the rest of their physical stores, that has changed and that will continue to change. And they will have to find alternatives such as a 3PL network or 4PL network, or to establish their own network like Nike when they took off the uh, Amazon uh, uh, network. And that will basically result in many more, uh, much more demand to those last mile uh, facilities within urban locations. I, I agree with you with that. There's a couple of things that I wanna highlight is, is that the more something is a mass market consumer item, the more the expectation is that I should be able to see that one or two days. If, if you're advertising it on your site and it's a consumer product, I've got multiple places I could go buy that. And I'm choosing to shop it out of Amazon instead of going to Walmart or Kohl's or any of the brick and mortar stores because of the convenience. And the convenience means is I'm clicking the button today. I expect it in the next day or two. But the more uh, that the product is not mass market, the more that it is a customized product or the more that it is that it's a hard to find product, the more that uh, the consumer is willing to get it the next day, that they understand that this, was, this is much harder to get. I can't go get it at any brick and mortar store. And so getting it next day, while nice, isn't the driving decision. I'm I'm buying it from this site because it's one of the few places I can get it. And all I'm really expecting as a consumer, based off of the research that, that I've looked at, is, is that uh, you tell me when I'm going to get it and you live up to that. And so if it's going to take a week, that's okay because I know I don't have another way to get it. Uh, so 
that's part of that equation. And I, I like to remind my clients, there is no one, one perfect answer. It's the answer that's perfect for your situation. And just because that's a situation for Amazon or Walmart doesn't mean it's the right situation for you. The other thing is, is that I think that it's driving, you know, there's brands out there that they have been 100%. Their distribution channel was through wholesale distribution or through retail distribution. They sold the retailers and they sold the wholesalers that then sold the retailers. And uh, what they're now looking at is in the world of COVID, they are wanting to create a connection with more direct com connection with that consumer. But their operations, their manufacturers, they are used to shipping truckloads of product to the retailers or truckloads of product to the, to the wholesalers. They are not used to shipping one unit to a, a consumer. What do those brands have to turn to? And not only do they have to think about the physical distribution, but they also got to think through the pain of creating a website, merchandising it, marketing it, all the rest of those uh, challenges. COVID has pushed it to where in the past, those manufacturers, those brands wouldn't think about it in the past, but now they're thinking about it, not only thinking about it and thinking about it really hard, they're actually starting to take action. There's challenges that they have and being able to meet those, those needs out of their existing facilities. So they'll turn to three PLs and four PLs to help them with that journey. Huge challenge. So if I'm trying to really put, to simplify that, uh, if I were, I was a brand that uh, used to uh, send food truck loads to Walmart and now Walmart can accept most of my stuff or the consumers won't come into Walmart to purchase it and I need to adapt myself into the future. I'm starting to deal with new challenges. One is the supply chain challenge of uh, how could I actually get to those customers with less than truckload? I got to have more facilities. Transportation is lost, maybe 50 or 60% of my logistics cost of operation. So I need multiple more facilities closer to the uh, consumers. I got to deal also with network optimization because maybe some of my goods are better off in Atlanta than in Miami. So I gotta have some kind of software to handle that. I cannot handle, I can, Walmart are not gonna do that for me. And then if I'm gonna want to set some kind of direct consumer uh, experience, as you mentioned, I'm gonna have to go live in my in new channels. If it's Shopify, if it's my own uh, .com, if it's uh, uh, through uh, Amazon or through any other uh, channel that would expose me and allow me to have that direct experience with my uh, consumers. Those brands could have hundreds of millions or billions of uh, uh, revenue and their shift is immediate. It must be, it's almost, uh, uh, it's disrupting their operation and it's uh, uh, an, an abrupt change uh, that they have to get used to. Uh, so what could they do other than just use the 3PL, the 4PL of the world? I mean, getting their own is almost impossible uh, many of those last mile facilities are not being built because there's no more land. So it's as a competition on new uh, and new and, and locations. So it's it, some of those brands are going to go either out of business or they're going to merge with bigger brands or they're going to find somehow their way if they just do it correctly over time and, and get and, and take some loss, I guess, in the show. You know, one of the, the one of the challenges and, and companies discovered this with, you know, in the early 21st century between 2000 and 2007, 2008, 
that trying to support e-commerce picking and e-commerce selection out of the same facility that they were doing their uh, replenishment to retail just didn't work because the fixturing is different. The layout of the facility is different. The equipment is different. And I mean, we touched upon this with the, with the discussion on how much more space do I need to support an e-commerce facility than a regular, you know, replenishment to retail facility. But um, uh, beyond that, the systems, the, the processes, everything is so different. And that uh, the companies who tried to support both modes out of the same facility uh, learned their lessons. And so you know, back in between 2000, 2006, 2007, 3PLs really grew to help support that activity, but it was uh, for much lower velocity and much lower volume than what they're seeing today. You know, COVID has definitely been the catalyst. So what are their alternatives? Well, their alternatives are either bite the bullet, bootstrap something on their own, or start looking for 3PLs or 4PLs to help them. But it's more than just the building that I got to worry about or the processes that go in. Uh, as you talked about, I got to worry about setting up a website or hitching my wagon to somebody else's website. Some opportunities, some what some smaller brands have done is, is they turned to Walmart and they said, look, I, you know, we want to run it through your website and then we'll support it out of our, our network. There's multiple sites out there that are providing that through Marketplace, though all of those sites are challenged because of the volume that's happening. A couple of weeks ago, Amazon told some of their marketplace customers, stop shipping on FedEx and we're going to make you ship on UPS. You're not going to ship on FedEx even anymore because FedEx couldn't support the volume. And so Amazon looked at it as it's going to create a service issue with us because we'll end up delivering it late, not being able to make our prime guarantee if you use FedEx. And so there's those challenges to go along with it. I would hate to be a brand today. It's, it's a challenge. It would be an interesting challenge, but it would be a painful challenge that if I had no direct to consumer activity and hadn't had any direct consumer activity in my business model, uh, come, you know, May, June, July timeframe this past year, if they made the decision, we're going to build an e-commerce leg to our business. Challenge would be exciting, but the challenge would also be very painful because it would be difficult to get in there today. And that's one of the ongoing challenges that I see happening with uh, the brands themselves that are trying to create their e-commerce channels. Interesting. You know, in our, in our real estate portfolio, we had several uh, interesting uh, phenomena that support uh, what you just uh, described. One of our uh, tenants um, took a 700,000 square feet new building and it was supposed to be an omni-channel operation, uh, stores and online. And, um, and during the pandemic, its online sales surged so much, uh, they decided not only to change the entire warehouse to online only, but also to expand it by 50%. And we're seeing that all over. That changes the operation, the amount of people. Talking about the amount of people, uh, the number of employees you need in a warehouse that is uh, goes by, by pallets and full truckloads 
and a single pick warehouse for online, that has also brings a lot of change and a challenge in today's all-time high employment. So what do you advise uh, uh, your clients? Do you choose those locations in cities that have more availability of labor? Or is that something you're trying to solve with automation or a mix of both, David? Yeah, it's a mix of both. And, uh, you know, with a couple of my clients, we're, you know, looking at, at what's happened with their business this past year uh, and how their, their uh, volume of activity more than doubled. So they add, you know, we added more equipment, we add, we straightened processes out, but we also brought more people in. For one of the clients, what we discovered was is there wasn't enough restroom support for all these employees. And so uh, we added a bank of uh, porta potties outside to be able to supply enough restroom capacity when it was needed to support their growth. And so as we're looking at the building that the building specifications for what they're going to be moving into in, in a couple of years, one of the shockers to them was when I said, all right, so as we beef up and we increase, this is what I what we're projecting as your headcount. And their headcount was going to go from 51 people per shift to close to 150 people per shift. So that was a 3x growth. And what that did is, is that increased the number of restrooms that we needed to put in the facility. Not just restrooms, but break room facility, lockers, locker room facility. Uh, so, you know, it, it had a important cost impact on what's going to happen with that building. If I compare 300,000 or 400,000 square foot general distribution center to a e-commerce facility, I'm going to have four times the headcount in that e-commerce facility than wow. I will in that general merchandise facility because I'm pulling pallets and cases and I don't need, you know, maybe I have 60, 70 employees in that shift. But for e-commerce, I need lots of people picking and I need lots of people pack. And that drives that, that headcount up. And it also drives the idea the bigger the building is, do I have, you know, one restroom space, you know, up by the break room, by the entrance of the building? Or am I now having to put more restrooms scattered throughout the warehouse facility so that People are not walking 10 minutes to go to the restroom. They're walking two minutes to go to the restroom. Yeah, I'm paying more. I have to build more restrooms and all the rest of that. But when you have two, 300 people, that two minutes versus 10 minutes calculation really starts to justify why you have more restrooms and not just bigger restrooms. Those are all issues that are getting run into when you start thinking about the actual space itself. So much things are, are, are changing and the uh, uh, implications are really gonna, I guess, uh, be with us for the next few years. And if, if those physical warehouses that support physical stores would actually transform to online, it's just, it's unbelievable to imagine what that effect would be on the need of, uh, of labor, uh, more real estate space, uh, delivery companies, there's an 8 trillion industry here that is going to double itself uh, in the next five years. And uh, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, since you and I can probably chat for uh, 20 hours nonstop, but we do have our listeners. So uh, I'll go into the last subject and, and we'll make sure to uh, deep dive again in, 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 in the, uh, the next podcast together. But thinking about reverse logistics just for a minute, this is something that also is change between 
physical shopping and online shopping. And as you go to a physical store, you have less selection and you usually return less because you go to the fitting room and you know what you're buying. Uh, and that is not the case and even not even the business model for some online companies uh, as, uh, as Zappos. How do those companies deal with uh, the reverse logistics uh, phenomenon? And I mean, how unprofitable is it? Well, it's it, it could be extremely unprofitable if you haven't thought through and driven what your pro, your your processes are, and so Zappos, because their business model was that you know a hundred percent return, no charge, they focused on coming up with a process of being able to drive uh, as much of the cost out of that return process as possible. So, and that that process wasn't just the physical process. It was also the back office process. And so they did a lot more to make it that a consumer didn't have to talk to an individual. They could just go online, click, I, it's not the right size and, and away we go. So it's, you know, what, what have they done with their processes to streamline the customer experience of that return and eliminating as much uh, human intervention out of the process as possible. And then as the product comes back is the business model that we return those goods to our, our own inventory because it didn't get used. It didn't get resold. They bought it. They bought three colors. They chose one color and sent the other two back. Well, it's a perfectly sellable product. And so Zappos looked at how they were going to bring that product back internally process it inside their building to return it to stock. There's other models like, you know, Amazon's been doing this for some time where uh, they drive their returns back to not to every single fulfillment center. They have a handful of dedicated returns facilities that bring that product in. That's where the, that customer product comes back. It, they have the proper equipment and the training in place and the systems in place to be able to intake those goods, repackage those goods, and then they shift the inventory to a fulfillment center. That's another thing that these companies have done to try to lower that cost of, the, of reverse logistics. You still have quality-driven returns issues where the product has a tear, it has a rip, a stain, it doesn't work, and... You know, that's still happening. Once again, in that process of identifying when it's a broken item, do I even bring it back to my fulfillment center or my return center? Or do I tell the customer, get rid of it? Just go ahead and throw it away. And there's some of them, there's some e-commerce plays that they look at it as the items worth less than $10 cost. Don't even bother bringing it back. Tell the customer, continue to use it or just throw it away. We'll, we'll send you a replacement. And you'll see that in Amazon returns sometimes where Amazon will, they know what the cost of their return is. And they look at the value of the item, they go, it's not worth returning. Just keep it or destroy it, throw it away. Mm -hmm. And so that's some of the ways, that's some of the growing challenges is it's really focused on the, on that process. De definitely an emerging challenge that is not yet uh, by most of the businesses, most of the supply chains, not, not yet coped uh, I guess in the optimum uh, way, and I think it just uh, it just adds to one of those things that will affect the need for more uh, logistics space going ahead. So, so we just, we talked about reverse logistics. We talked about total e-commerce sales grow. Uh, we talked about consumers' expectations, at least for a bigger variety of product becoming shorter, and then inventory increase. We haven't touched about that. 
uh, we ran out of time, but an inventory increase that may uh, grow as uh, as COVID is still, uh, you know, part of our environment and uh, those brands are afraid of uh, disruptions. So, uh, David, it's been, as always, so interesting. Uh, thank you so much for the time. And, and we would be sure to invite you to another podcast. Thank you very much. It was a great conversation and I thoroughly enjoyed having it with you. Great. And, and thanks to our listeners. Um, uh, this has been our fourth uh, Fairpoint Groups podcast. Uh, you can find us in uh, Spotify, Apple and the other channels. Uh, so thanks so, uh, for being here and uh, happy Hanukkah. 